This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Dr. Angela Mackey, a pediatrician at Mayo Clinic Children's Center in Rochester, Minnesota. Eating disorders are a huge problem right now in our country. Whether you know it or not, if you are a primary care provider who treats teenagers, you are probably caring for patients with eating disorders. Although estimates vary, anywhere from 13 to 15% of adolescents will experience an eating disorder at some point. Along with numerous physical and psychological consequences of these illnesses, eating disorders also have the second highest mortality rate of any mental illness. One in five patients will die from complications related to their eating disorder. This puts the average primary care provider in a tough spot because getting care for an eating disorder is really hard or even impossible depending on where you live. There is a serious shortage of mental health providers or centers that specialize in eating disorders, which leaves over 80% of patients reporting that they get all of their eating disorder care from their primary care provider. This episode is the first episode in our eating disorders edition focused on how primary care providers can treat children with eating disorders. This episode will concentrate on the basics. What are eating disorders? What do they do to our patients? And what myths and misunderstandings exist that get in our way of effectively identifying and treating them? Today, we are joined by Dr. Jocelyn Lebo, a Mayo Clinic child and adolescent psychologist and one of my colleagues and collaborators in the Mayo Clinic Children's Center Primary Care Child and Adolescent Eating Disorder Clinic. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Lebo. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited as well. This is obviously a huge passion of ours. Mm -hmm. And hopefully everyone listening to this is also really excited to learn more about eating disorders because like I just mentioned, we're seeing them in primary care all the time. I know. And especially with the pandemic, I think rates of eating disorders have tripled maybe. So Mm -hmm. this is really timely, really relevant for everybody. Absolutely. And there's a wide range of different types of eating disorders. So Mm -hmm. I think that's the best place for us to start. So what are the different types of diagnoses and how do they actually tend to present in primary care? Because I feel like what I learned in medical school is not what you and I see. Totally. No, I think that's really important. Everybody has some basic knowledge of what an eating disorder is. Like if you've watched made for TV movies, you have some idea of what eating disorders are, right? But that's not how they look even most of the time, I think. As far as different diagnoses, the big ones, the main ones that everybody's heard of, anorexia nervosa is the first one. And this is restricting eating and having some unhealthy weight loss or, and this is important for kids, failure to make expected gains. I've seen really horrible cases of anorexia. And I know you have too, Ange, where it's not so much that they've lost weight, but they were supposed to grow. They were supposed to grow and gain and they just have stunted their development because they have been restricting calories so much. I think the thing that people don't realize about anorexia is you can't eyeball it. You can't see a kid come in and be like, oh, yep, that kid's teeny, that kid's skeletal, that's the case of anorexia. That Mm -hmm. happens, but anorexia can happen at any BMI. It's really a deviation from your personal growth curve. So for kids, we talk about pulling up that curve, pulling up that history. And that's why primary care providers are so great. Mm -hmm. You guys have this on your radar. You guys are looking at growth and development, Mm -hmm. any deviation, even if it's above the 50th percentile, above the 85th percentile, if that is not where they've historically tracked, that's a source of concern. 
Yeah. And I would just add in there, I teach my residents and I've given lectures on this is that every single time you see a patient, you need to look at their growth chart because we've Mm -hmm. seen so many times that a patient has been in for four or five different visits and nobody has noticed that they're losing weight, or maybe they were in a normal weight area and people just thought it was appropriate because maybe they were at a higher BMI to start with. So every single time you have to look at that growth chart. And if you forget to do it and you look at after they leave the office, it's okay. Call them back. Tell them what your concerns are. Yes. I think the other thing people get confused with anorexia, I see a lot of parents come in and they're like, well, you know, my kid eats, my kid eats, Mm -hmm. I can't have anorexia. If a kid wasn't eating at all, they would be in the hospital, right? These kids (laughs) eat. It's either not enough to compensate for the exercise they're doing. It's not enough to compensate for how old they are, or it's just that the parents aren't seeing the restriction. Mm -hmm. Usually kids will cut out snacks, will cut out breakfast and have dinner with their family, or they're running all over the place. They're going to their sports, they're doing things and, and they're just missing a bunch of meals. There can be eating. The other thing I think that people get mixed up about anorexia all the time. I don't know about you, Angie. I think this is a shift. I think it is rare for kids to come in saying, I want to be skinny. I want to be thin. I think that they don't use those words anymore. I think the majority of kids come in talking about, I want to be healthy. I'm doing this to be healthy. I'm making healthy changes, right? I want to be clean. I want to be clean. clean. Yes, Mm. yes. I want to be fit. I'm cutting out carbs because they're not good for you. Or I just want to do less snacks. And honestly, this is something that really fools parents and even providers, right? Mm -hmm. We're high-fiving these kids like, great job, great job. Mm -hmm. No, you don't need that junk. And it's problematic. It's this dog whistle, right? Like it's this Mm -hmm. like hidden message. Like I'm eating healthy. We all know what they mean. Mm -hmm. They want to lose weight. They want to be thin and fit and lean. There's a lot of talk in the media about orthorexia, about this obsession with health. And, And people talk about it like it's a distinct eating disorder. And I think it's kind of problematic because in my opinion, it's an eating disorder, but it's, it's anorexia. It's like the 2020 to 2022 new phenomenon. This is what anorexia is. I also would put in there that the reason for their weight loss doesn't really matter. We have kids who are full on, I'm going to lose some weight. Mm-hmm. We have some kids who are, I'm going to lose some weight. And it's something that was recommended by their provider, or they're doing it with their parent, or they're doing it through a program like Noom or Weight Watchers or one of those. It doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. We also have kids who have lost weight accidentally, who mm-hmm. have gotten put on a stimulant, who have gotten put on a medication and sort of backed into the eating disorder, or it's happened in the context of anxiety or depression, their appetite is waned mm-hmm. and they've lost weight. I guess we'll talk about that a little bit later, but yeah, those are all my sort of bones to pick with how people Mm -hmm. understand anorexia. Is there anything you can think of, Ange, that I'm missing? Yeah, I I would say so many of the eating disorders that I've picked up in my own primary care practice, there was no discussion or concerns that were brought up whatsoever. And halfway through my visit, I'm looking at the growth chart going, oh my goodness, what just happened? Mm -hmm. And then everything completely pivots because you don't know what's an eating disorder at that point. No one has told you anything about any red flags. Patients don't come in with a sign that says I have an eating disorder and I'm actively restricting. It's part of the eating disorders process to continue to hide that, right? And continue to keep it on the DL. They're Mm -hmm. not going to be advertising because the eating disorder wants to continue to make control over that child. And so it's usually something that sometimes parents don't even notice and no fault of their own. Parents are busy. This pandemic has been incredibly stressful for families and for teens and adolescents and children as well. And so that growth chart is key because they're not going to tell you that there's a problem. Or the other thing is that they might come in and they have, like you said, some other mental health concern, or they have some other physical or somatic concern. And then you look at their growth chart and you have to start kind of going down the road of questions. And we'll get into questions more, but they're often not going to just start telling you like, yeah, yeah, I want to be thin. I want to be at this weight. I'm afraid of certain foods. I'm weighing myself. Like they're pretty sneaky about how they're going to tell you about this information. 
So what are some other types of eating disorders? We've obviously kind of focused a little bit upon the restricting types. What are some other ones that providers should be looking for? Yeah. So bulimia nervosa is the other one that people have tend to have heard of, right? This is binge eating and purging. And it should be noted, by the way, for anorexia, there is a subtype that can include purging and binging, you know? And so if your patient has fallen off the growth curve, even if they're binge eating, even if they're purging, that still is considered an anorexia diagnosis. But for patients who have, are maintaining a weight that's healthy for them, the, the binge eating and purging pattern is bulimia. I think this one's really, really difficult to identify because even more than anorexia, there's a lot of secrecy with eating disorders, but bulimia and binge eating disorder, which we'll talk about in a second, there's a ton of shame. These kids feel embarrassed. They feel really, really guilty about what they're doing. And so treading kind of carefully with this, especially when you're asking kids about their binges, I think is really important. Binge eating disorder, which I just said, it's a newer diagnosis. We've always kind of known it was there, but it's part of the DSM-5. That's binge eating without presence of the purging or compensatory behaviors. And again, that's something where it's just knowing that this kid is feeling so uncomfortable and so bad about themselves. ARFID is um, avoidant restricted food intake disorder is one that comes up a lot for pediatricians. This one tends to onset in younger kids older kids too, but younger kids, it's a newer official diagnosis, but again, it's one we've kind of known about. It's this idea of weight loss or failure to maintain a healthy weight in the absence of any weight or shape concerns. So, so these are your picky eaters to the extreme, or their kids who have issues with textures, their kids who have some medical issues that's made it so that they've got phobias about swallowing or about vomiting. These are kids who really can't maintain a healthy weight because of these things. This tends to affect younger kids. It tends to affect more boys. Again, this, this is a really new area. We're still figuring it out, but it's something to also keep on your radar. And as a primary care provider, even a primary care provider who supposedly like a specialist in eating disorders, which is, you know, me, I didn't really understand or know about ARFID. Um, And so it was kind of, I kind of think about it. It's like those failure to thrive kids that just continue to just be very low BMI percentiles. And like you said, have all these problems with textures. There's a lot of overlap sometimes with kids with sensory issues, sometimes kids on the, um, the spectrum, things to kind of keep in mind. Kids with chronic pain sometimes. And mm-hmm. and this is the thing is it's not fake. It hurts mm-hmm. them to eat. It's uncomfortable, Absolutely. it's aversive to eat, but it's just, it results in this unhealthy, you, you can't maintain a healthy weight. All right. What about risk factors? Are there certain risk factors for developing eating disorders in general? Oh man, this is hard. There's a lot of literature out there. The main thing I think that everyone needs to know eating disorders, they can happen to anybody. They're mm-hmm. equal opportunity. We have this picture in our head. And again, it's like lifetime made for TV movies, right? It's this like wealthy, white, emaciated teenager to maybe like college aged woman. And we're figuring out more and more that that's just not the case, that these disorders affect every gender identity, every race and ethnicity, every SES, every age, it should always be on your differentials. And I think sometimes people accidentally rule out an eating disorder just based on the patient's demographics, right? Oh, well, it can't be an eating disorder because they don't look like it or, or because they're a boy or because they're, you know, it's keeping that in mind. However, there are some things that make you more prone. There is a genetic component to eating disorders, but it's not direct. It's not like everybody who's had an eating disorder is going to have a kid with one. Other risk factors, one of the biggest ones is dieting behaviors. And I think this is important. Dieting behaviors don't just include like being on a diet and calling it a diet, Mm -hmm. right? Dieting behaviors include cutting out foods, like we said, to be healthy. Oh, it's a lifestyle plan sort of way. Kids who have food restrictions that are legitimate are more at risk just because they're thinking more about what they can and can't eat. 
also other risk factors include perfectionistic kids, kids who have a lot of sort of emotional sensitivities, trauma, and all those sort of psychosocial risk factors make kids more likely to have everything. So those are going to be a concern. I would always kind of keep it on your list of differentials. If you see a kid who's not gaining like they should. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't mean that you diagnose it in that first visit too. Mm -hmm. And it's something that becomes more apparent with time, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes with follow-up visits and challenges that you might ask the patient to do. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about what having an eating disorder can do to a patient's psychological and physical functioning. So this is big. And this is why we're doing this podcast, because these are not, I think this is an important myth to kind of get out of there right away. I think people look at some eating disorders and they look at them like these benign or rite of passage, normal phase that teenagers go through. And that is not the case. These disorders are serious. These disorders affect every organ system in the body. And they have one of the highest mortality rates of any mental illness. One, it depends on the stats you look at, but up to one out of five people die from complications related to their eating disorder. They're related to higher rates of cardiac events, higher rates of suicide. Eating disorders are bad guys. They're super bad. And the earlier we can intervene, the better prognosis is. There's a high rate of relapse, a high rate of chronicity. But again, if you can get in early, which is why I love working with primary care providers so much, because you guys are there on the ground, first contact. If we can get in early, we can make a huge difference. So a lot of these patients, when they come into the office, are not going to tell you that they have an eating disorder, but they may present with some other physical symptoms. GI symptoms tend to predominate. So you'll hear that they have abdominal pain and that food makes them sick. Certain foods make things worse. They'll complain a lot of their belly hurting all the time, and they may be extremely constipated because they're not feeding their body. There's nothing going through their GI tract. And so as a part of the malnutrition, the GI tract is going to slow down its motility. There will be a profound loss of appetite. And sometimes that's the main presenting symptom. It's not that they don't want to eat. It's that they have no appetite and they do lose their appetite. I I tell them that their brain quits trying to send hunger cues to them because all they do is ignore them as part of this disease process. Another thing is that they will be lightheaded. They'll be weak. They will be dizzy. Sometimes there's a lot of headaches that go along with this. And then if you were to check their, their vital signs in the office, which we'll talk about like the medical evaluation and later episodes, you'll see heart rate changes. You'll see bradycardia you'll see sometimes blood pressure changes. And if you do evaluation with labs, you'll see electrolyte changes often. Just because you don't see electrolyte changes or changes in their labs does not mean they're not sick. These usually happen only in patients that have very abrupt, rapid weight loss. In patients that are chronically ill with their eating disorder symptoms, their body has normalized to this new state of malnutrition. So let's talk a little bit about the psychological effects that you tend to see, because that's what the parents are really seeing is these very depressed and anxious teenagers. Mm-hmm. In terms of psychological comorbidities or consequences, kids with eating disorders look really depressed. They look really flat. A lot of them have a ton of anhedonia and there is a high rate of suicide attempts and and actual completed suicides. They look scary. And a lot of times these are kids who are really good kids, who are really high functioning kids. And a lot of times, honestly, they're still functioning high. They're doing well at school. They're doing well in their extracurriculars, but all the rest, you know, parents talk about the stuff that makes their kid, their kid is gone. They're just flat. I had a patient who she was talking about all these movies about eating disorders that show like patients with eating disorders, like triumphantly, like running up hills to like conquer their, and she was like, oh man, if someone had a video on me when I was really sick, it would be me sitting on my bed, staring at a wall, 
trying to like think about how I'm not going to eat at the next meal. She's like, I was so boring. All my interests went away. I just looked really flat. Parents will talk about as eating normalizes, as weight starts to get restored. They talk about their kid coming back, the stuff that makes their kid, their kid coming back. So I think that's important. These kids look flat. They look scary. They look pretty anxious and edgy and, and rigid. Some of this may have been pre-morbid, but eating disorders make it worse. Eating disorders absolutely make it worse. And we know that when you treat an eating disorder, when you weight restore a kid, when you normalize their eating, a lot of these symptoms go away. Again, if they had pre-morbid issues with mood and anxiety, they may still be there, but they'll be less. And for some kids, they go away completely. As a psychologist, it's like a cheat code. If I can restore, weight restore someone, sometimes I look like a genius, like I've treated their mood and anxiety when I've done nothing more than just re-nourish their body. We also know that when you're treating an eating disorder, when a kid is, especially when a kid's malnourished, they can't do a lot of therapy. They're cognitively just not able to track. They have alexithymia. They struggle with introspection. And so doing therapy, not only are the outcomes pretty poor for individual therapy, I feel like it can have an unintended negative consequence for a kid who's, you're trying to do depression therapy or anxiety therapy when they're also underweight, they're trying, they're trying to engage and they just can't, it can, it can lead to them, I think, feeling pretty hopeless. So we always talk about treat the eating disorder first, treat the malnutrition first. That is why these eating disorders are so crucial. It's so crucial to get these kids into treatment. One thing that we really share with our patients to help them understand how eating disorders affect their psychological functioning is the Minnesota Starvation Study. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's the foundation of what we understand to be true about malnutrition and its impact on the body. So basically, this was done up at the University of Minnesota back in the 40s. This Ansel Keys and a bunch of his colleagues really were not trying to study eating disorders at all. The purpose of the study was they had all these people coming back from the war who were malnourished and they wanted to look at the impact of, of malnutrition and refeeding on the body. In order to study this, they got a group of college males to volunteer. They were conscientious objectors to the war. They were, had to be psychologically, physically clean, healthy, healthy, healthy college students who volunteered for the study and they cut their calories. They reduced their calories down to a little bit more than 1500 calories per day, which obviously is many more calories than our patients are eating sometimes and tracked all these metrics of psychiatric and physical functioning as their bodies, their body mass reduced. And what they found was fascinating. Just like we talked about starvation had impact on every single medical system. What they didn't anticipate is the impact it had on these patients functioning, cognitive functioning and psychological functioning. These patients who, again, to remind you, were psychiatrically clean, had no depression, had no anxiety, were really, really politically active guys, they became depressed. They lost interest in all of their normal activities. They lost interest in sex. They lost interest in politics. They lost, they became completely anhedonic with the exception of a fixation on food and calories. They began reading cookbooks. They began talking about food. They began behaving really unusually around food, such as, you know, hoarding their rations, cutting it into very small pieces, acting essentially like we see some of our patients who are really malnourished act. They began compulsively exercising. They had issues with impaired judgment, impaired concentration. They became irritable and they began to withdraw. They did things like become really compulsive about hoarding food, had took vicarious pleasure in watching others eat. Several of them became so depressed that they had to be released from the study. One of them attempted to kill himself. One of them tried to cut off his finger to get out of the study. They became 
extremely, extremely psychiatrically and cognitively impaired just from the impact of, of malnutrition. The thing that's especially interesting about this study is as they began to refeed them, you know, in the beginning, it, it was difficult. Patients had this sort of insatiable hunger. They had what felt like binge eating, but all of these things for the most part reversed, including the mood symptoms. And this, this taught us some huge lessons about malnutrition, particularly the fact that it doesn't matter why you lose the weight. It doesn't matter how the weight comes off. We talk about in our practice that you can sort of back into an eating disorder, that if you lose enough weight, your brain, we talk about it sort of clicking over into this, this anorexic brain. You look really disordered around food. You look really depressed, but by treating that malnutrition, you can reverse these symptoms. So this is important. This is huge for us because it means kids who lose weight in the context of chronic pain, kids who lose weight in the context of anxiety and depression or a medication change, it still matters. This means kids who lose weight in the context of a behavioral weight loss program can sometimes show these changes and nothing will make it better aside from weight restoration. I think weight loss and amenorrhea and some of these things get really normalized for athletes, for high-level athletes, right? We talk about the female athlete triad. We talk about the relative energy deficiency syndrome as if they're different things. But truly, if you're losing that much weight as an athlete, I think that you have to have a high suspicion for an eating disorder. We know that being that lean, thanks to the Minnesota starvation study, we know that being that lean can lead to this cognitive impairment and ultimately mood complications and lifelong impairment. It's something that should be on our rule out, even if a kid happens to be lower weight and good at sports. So what our listeners want to know is why does this matter for the primary care provider and what is their role on the treatment team? This is a great question. And this is why we've made this podcast. So we're going to go into this more detail over the rest of the episodes. But my biggest answer is this. They're coming to you first. When I have an issue with my daughter, I call Angie, but I call a pediatrician immediately (laughs) (laughs) because you guys are the experts in development, in growth, in nutrition. And you also, for a lot of us, you're someone who's been with our family since our kid was born. We're going to come to you first. And and the data supports this. The data shows that PCPs, you guys are where parents bring their kids first. You guys are a a huge authority on identifying this, on getting the conversation started that this might be an eating disorder and encouraging families to go to treatment. Families are really ambivalent about treatment. It's really hard. It asks a lot of families. It's costly. It's hard to find. And so having someone in their corner confirming this is the right thing to do and not letting them kind of ignore it or, or, or hand wave it away is huge. Early intervention is associated with positive prognoses for eating disorders. So the earlier we can talk about this, the better. I also think that primary care providers have this amazing role in prevention. We talk about this a lot in our clinic. So we see eating disorder cases in primary care and we treat them. But we also have what we like to talk about is as near misses. And maybe, Angie, I know you've had a couple of those. You want to talk about what you did as their pediatrician for those cases? Yeah. I mean, the very first thing is, like I've talked about before, is you look at their growth chart and you notice that things are starting to change. So you ask more questions about maybe what is driving this weight loss or maybe what kind of changes in their behavior that have happened. And from there, they might've started to make a little bit of changes. Maybe it was a suggestion because their BMI was elevated or a comment that was made by somebody, or maybe their family is going to a vegan diet. And there's been a lot of changes that have resulted in what they're eating and they're losing weight because of it. And they might 
start to see a little bit of changes in their cognitions, meaning some of the psychological things that we've talked about. And I talked to them about, you know, what can happen. I talked to them about the Minnesota starvation study and how we have a chance to reverse this and keep their child in a healthy physical and psychological range. And I've followed them just a couple other times and get them back to their previous growth percentiles. And those children change very quickly. Maybe some psychological changes that were happening, they were becoming more withdrawn or more fixated on their food. And all of a sudden their parents say like, oh, my child's back again. And maybe they hadn't, didn't meet all the criteria for a full eating disorder, but it was very quick to change the narrative for these patients that food is important and food is their medicine and food is our energy that drives us instead of it being a punishment or something that we restrict. There's so much going on in our country and in our world uh, in regards to the narratives and the conversations we have about our bodies and food. And I think we need to be the source that's not focusing on numbers and we're not focusing on percentiles with kids, which was very different. I know than what we were all been trained on how we all as primary care providers need to look at percentiles and every kid needs to be less than the 85th percentile, but that's not true. Some kids have always tracked at that rate. There's genetics, there's psychosocial things that go into it. There's trauma, there's epigenetic modifications, right? That we all are learning more and more about. And we may be harming these children by telling them that they need to reduce their percentiles. Instead, we focus on the things they're doing well, the things that make their bodies feel strong and powerful. That's the message that I give to my patients, not about the numbers. I praise them on all the things they do that they feel proud about. And I think that's what I really hope people listening to this podcast can, can take away and maybe add some of those little nuggets into their practice when they're counseling their patients about their BMI and their weight. I love that so much. I think that's great. We've been talking about eating disorders 101 with Dr. Jocelyn Lebo. Thank you so much for your time today, Jocelyn. Thanks for having me. It's fun. If you enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. And you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Angela Mackey or my Facebook show and podcast called Ask the Mayo Mom on Mayo Clinic's Facebook Live. Stay healthy and see you next week. Thank you.